Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, welcome everybody. My guest for this episode is Rich Hamill. Rich is a technical director with all four. He's going to be joining us for a few episodes coming up here in the near term discussing different topics. Rich actually started his career in software development, then moved over to air quality consulting, so varied background. But for the past 20 or so years, Rich has been helping facilities navigate complicated air quality permitting and modeling projects for their most important capital investments. Rich has an atmospheric science background, so one of the focuses being air quality modeling. That makes sense. During his consulting career, Rich has been responsible for leading air quality modeling teams, coordinating national air practices. So through that experience, he's got a good sense on regulatory and policy activity and the practical impacts that that has on industrial facilities. So that's why you're going to be hearing from him more in the coming episodes. Rich is also what I would consider a very interesting person. He's got some interesting hobbies outside of work. Rich, can you tell us about a couple of those? Here, thanks, Colin. Um, Yeah, I I always say that I don't really have time for a job because I have too many hobbies. But my main one is uh, along the atmospheric science bent is I'm an avid storm chaser, and I've been doing it for about 20 years, working as a guide and forecaster for a storm chasing tour company in my spare time and, you know, gotten to see a lot of the country taking people out chasing storms and uh, trying to find tornadoes and been pretty successful. Actually, I've seen about 110 tornadoes over my time at home. I'm in a band. Uh, I play bass guitar and, uh, and sing in a rock band. And then uh, when that's not going on, I'm a soccer dad and driving my girls to practice and games all over creation. Very nice. So two things. I wouldn't be surprised if one of our colleagues ends up on your tour at some point. That just wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> and, and Rich is very comfortable being behind recording equipment. So I think the audience here is in very good hands. So today we're going to discuss air quality modeling specifically, where it's headed, why it will continue to grow in importance for capital planning. We've seen this evolve over time. We may look backward here at the beginning. The only reason we're looking backward is to provide context for what could happen moving forward, because that's what this podcast is all about. It's about future planning. So with that, we're going to get into the meat of the modeling content. And Rich, I am going to start with a looking backward aspect of this topic. How have you seen air quality modeling evolve in importance and change in the last 20 years of your experience? Yeah, so it goes all the way back really to the, the 70s and some of the original like very basic steady state models. But things didn't really start you know, getting together until the 80s when computers started to become powerful enough to run these things. And um, the American Meteorological Society and the EPA started getting together and collaborating on developing a, a better model. The real trigger to to bring modeling to the forefront was the beginning of the New Source Review Program in 1990 that required a modeling demonstration with any permitting project. And that, some field studies around air dispersion modeling that could be used as as test databases, and the collaboration between uh, the AMS and EPA started to bring us the models that are 
prominent today, like AirMod and, and all that. As time has gone on, again, more computer power, a better understanding of atmospheric science and how air dispersion works has made the models, uh, you know, more and more accurate, although they still, you know, leave some things to be desired. But now we're at the point where they're not only used for any kind of capital permitting project, it's a, a critical path item, but also in litigation support, in national studies, photochemical modeling, and uh, you know, in public relations, just making demonstrations to you know, assure the public that whatever project you're doing is, is uh, done in such a way that keeps them safe. Makes sense. And I, I'm going to go to two general categories you mentioned a few things there, litigation support and some other things, certainly, but I'm going to focus this next question on the regulatory side. We know we've got the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. Those come into play as a big modeling driver for capital projects. And we know we have air toxics drivers that are out there. We're going to talk about both of those. But starting with the first category, NAX pollutants, what do we need to have our eyes on moving forward and why? Yeah, well, the most important ones right now are ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and particulate matter of uh, 2.5 microns or less. And I think the reason that we spend the most attention on those is because those standards are so stringent. The one-hour NO2 standard and the PM2.5 standards have all been you know, upgraded since uh, since 2010, 2012, and a lot of facilities haven't ever had to actually model against the new standard. So that's something that if you haven't modeled your facility against those, you want to be aware of what your emissions are and what your risks are there. The second one, of course, is ozone with a pretty stringent standard right now of uh, 70 ppb for 2015. And that's become uh, a much more forefront topic since the revision to Appendix W, the federal modeling guidelines in 2017, where EPA decided that, you know, it's now possible to model a single source and identify its ozone impact. And so now that has also become a a forefront item. Rich, thinking about those next pollutants, just one follow-up question. There is some very in the here and now activity around PM 2.5, because the current EPA administration has been reviewing that. Looks like they're about to finalize it. Can you provide the audience with an update on where that stands, what the current EPA administration is looking to do, and maybe what the future administration might do, knowing PM 2.5 is such an important capital project pollutant? Sure. Well, the big challenge around PM 2.5, there are really two. One is around the challenges about characterizing uh, fugitive emissions in general. But also the issue is that in a lot of places in the United States, the ambient background for PM 2.5 is right up against the standards already, especially the annual standard, which is currently 12 micrograms per cubic meter. The current administration has just completed their review that is required for each NACs as to whether it should be made more stringent or changed and decided that they're not going to change it this round. And that's going to hit the federal register in the next couple of weeks. However, there was a pretty big drive from the science community and also the environmentalist community to lower those standards, especially the annual one down to possibly as low as, as nine micrograms per cubic meter. So only 75% of the current standard. That would put a lot of the country out of attainment and also reduce the amount of room you have between that 
ambient background and the standard to try to permit something in between. So if that were to be lowered, permitting um, a source that had high PM 2.5 emissions or even just moderate PM 2.5 emissions becomes much more of a challenge. Makes sense. Okay, so we're going to shift this a little bit to air toxics. So we see activity in several states right now around air toxics. Can you speak to how those programs are expanding generally? Who should be paying attention to this from the standpoint of industrial facilities? And how can they go about keeping track of all this activity? Yeah, well, toxics is interesting because, you know, until recently, a lot of states didn't really have well-developed standards around toxics, but toxics are much more in the public eye, I think, than the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. So if there is a, a toxics incident somewhere, that immediately ends up in the press. So you might say that the kind of the public pressure has actually led the states to take a closer look at this stuff. Now, come into the last couple of years, and we have states like Oregon, New Jersey, New York, that are really focusing more and more on toxics. So we see actually a lot of air modeling studies being done during permitting exercises that are not even really required of toxics so that that information is sort of there to preempt the possibility that an intervener might, you know, attack that as a deficiency. A lot of the states are focusing on uh, ethylene oxide is probably the, you know, the most um, visible toxic in terms of public awareness right now. So we're seeing a lot of programs start to develop around that. But really, uh, a lot of the states are starting to, uh, you know, specifically require toxic studies as part of their permitting processes. Toxics rich on a lots of activity on a state level due to public pressure and things like that. How about federal? We know we have a, a different administration coming in. What do you see there? Yeah, I, I think there's going to be more focus on that as well. You know, we've already heard in in the news and, and um, you know, as part of the, the transition to the Biden future EPA, some of the things that they're looking at. And I think we're going to see some of these toxics programs go more federal. Uh, again, ethylene oxide is going to be one. It's not really primarily an air one, but PFAs is, is uh, you know, a very um, kind of hot button topic right now based on the the Flint, Michigan water situation and some others. So I think we're going to see sort of broader national programs around a, a number of toxics. Rich, some of these toxics programs at the state level now, and like you said, could be expanding into federal. What are we seeing as the triggers for having to look at, at toxics? I know it varies by state, but are we seeing a trend to get air toxics modeling outside of just construction permitting and tie it more into routine operations. We're just running, but we have to look at toxics anyway. What's the sense there? What should people expect to be seeing? Because I think it'll keep directionally, it'll keep going. Yeah, I think that it's um, it's almost more of a, a compliance type thing that we're going to see in that, you know, there are going to be these new standards that we're going to have facilities have to go back and do these analyses to show that they're uh, complying with the regulations. Because, you know, most of the incidents that have made the news and, and the public awareness side of things has come from things that have occurred at existing facilities, not necessarily attempts to block a facility from being built. Uh, you know, there's a spill, there's some kind of a um, accidental release incident. Those end up in the news and those could be damaging to the uh, public image of a, of a company. And, um, 
you know, that's how that kind of gets heightened in terms of uh, visibility. Yeah. So public pressure on routine operations and whether or not the existing regulatory framework is sufficient to protect public health in and around the areas of these facilities, because a number of the high profile things we've seen, the facilities are in full compliance with operating permits in a number of those examples. So there is pressure to say, okay, what else do we need to be looking at on toxics that's maybe outside of the current framework? So we start to see these things grow. Right. And again, we, we have facilities and that are doing permitting actions that do these studies, even though there's no particular requirement to do them currently on the books because they want to get ahead of it, uh, you know, in case it comes up. Right. So on our previous two episodes, we talked with John Slade and we talked about environmental justice policy, knowing that the incoming Biden administration is going to have that as one area of focus. We talked a lot about how that might evolve, that we might see environmental justice in terms of the areas and the different types of triggering events to look at environmental justice considerations. Those things might grow and expand. We talked about public influence on air toxics modelings and things like that. We know that modeling can focus on the local community, local exposure. So these things seem to tie together, but how in the big picture does modeling tie in with what could be happening coming up on environmental justice? Well, I certainly think in the new administration, we're going to see more focus on environmental justice. We've seen a lot of signposts already. The Biden administration intends to make that a focal point. And in terms of modeling, we may see more stringent modeling requirements in environmental justice areas on projects that are trying to permit in those areas or that will have an impact on those areas above and beyond what would normally be required for those permits. The other place where we might see modeling get more involved is agencies doing hotspot modeling in environmental justice neighborhoods to try and find out if there are issues in those neighborhoods and possibly by the public or NGOs to try to bring attention to potential problems in those areas. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening to the first part of my modeling conversation with Rich Hamill. I hope you'll tune in next time when we will continue the discussion. Thanks for listening. Hello, all. As an update to our podcast recording, since that recording, EPA has published in the Federal Register their final decision to retain the PM 2.5 NACs, 35 micrograms per cubic meter for the 24-hour standard and 12 micrograms per cubic meter for the annual standard. So those stay as they were, and that decision is final. So that's the rule. Stay tuned to see what the Biden administration will do in the future as they may look to revisit it and potentially lower it, but we'll have to wait and see. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.